0: Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I'm in Matthew chapter 27. We're discussing the trial and crucifixion of Jesus in this chapter. Jesus has just been through an interrogation session in the house of Annas the high priest, the former high priest, and they took him from Annas' house to Caiaphas's house. This all happened early Friday morning while before the sun came up. Now just at daybreak, the uh, rump Sanhedrin that was meeting in Caiaphas' house tied Jesus up, and they took him to Pontius Pilate, the Roman procurator of Jerusalem. Now, Pontius Pilate was living, or actually he was staying, in one of Herod the Great's pal- residential palaces somewhere south and west of the temple, and in there there was a, a judgment hall, the Praetorium it, Praetorium it was called, and so that's where the scene is now, as we take it up in Matthew 27, verses 11 through 12. Now, Jesus stood before the governor. Pontius Pilate, the Holman Christian Study Bible, calls him the governor. The correct legal term, the Roman term, was procurator. Now, Jesus stood before the governor. Are you the king of the Jews? The governor asked him. Jesus answered, you have said it. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he didn't answer. Now, Matthew compresses an awful lot of stuff, so we need to go to the parallel passages and read them. To get a more complete idea about what's going on so we'll look at mark 15 verses 1 through 5 as soon it was morning as soon as it was morning the chief priest had a meeting with the elder scribes in the whole sanhedrin this was after they had come from caiaphas's house they went to the sanhedrin which was probably in the temple after tying jesus up they led him away away from the temple away from the sanhedrin meeting and handed him over to pilate So Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, you have said it. Now again, Mark compresses some stuff too. What happened was the Jews couldn't go into Pilate's house because they would be defiled going into a Gentile's house at the time of the Passover. So they accused Jesus outside of Pilate's house. And then Pilate took Jesus into the praetorium and asked him alone, are you the king of the Jews? That's not clear in Matthew and Mark. Verse 3 in Mark 15, the chief priest began to accuse him of many things. Then Pilate questioned him again, are you not answering anything? Look how many things they are accusing you of. Mark compresses the outside and the inside interrogations of Jesus. We go to Luke 23, verses one, starting with verse 1. Then their whole assembly rose up, that's the Sanhedrin, rose up and brought him before Pilate. They began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation, opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Again, this is outside of Pilate's house in the courtyard. The accusations you see are political. The first accusation that he's subverting our nation. Is he referring to the nation? Are they referring to the nation of the Jews or the Romans and the Jews? They might have been trying to say he's subverting our nation, which is a proud member of the Roman Empire, and he's causing a political rebellion. Maybe that's what they were trying to get at. They said he opposed payment of taxes to Caesar, which is an outright lie. You recall the story, he said, render unto Caesar, which is Caesar's, and saying that he himself is the Messiah, a king. Well, that was true, but they were trying to twist that to say that he was trying to be a political king, not a religious king. So Pilate asked him, are you king of the Jews? And again, that was inside. Luke compresses it also. He answered them, you have said it. So we go then to John chapter 18, starting with verse 28. Then they took Jesus from Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. Now, John leaves out the taking of Jesus from Caiaphas to the Sanhedrin first, where they officially condemned Jesus, and then they took him to the governor's headquarters, to Pilate's house. It was early morning. They did not enter the headquarters themselves, otherwise they would be defiled and unable to eat the Passover. Then Pilate came out to them and said, what charge do you bring against this man? So there you see that Pilate was dealing with the crowd, the Jewish accusers and Jesus outside of his house. They answered him, if this man weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have handed him over to you. So Pilate told them, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. So from the get-go, Pilate realizes this is not a political trial. This is a religious thing, and he didn't want anything to do with it. It's not legal for us to put anyone to death, the Jews declared. They said this so that Jesus' words might be fulfilled, signifying what kind of death he was going to die. Now, the Jews are saying, look, we can't put anybody to death. We've got to turn Jesus over to the Romans so the Romans can put him to death, which is crucifixion, as everybody knew. Now, Jesus had early predicted that he was going to die in Jerusalem, but he also had predicted the manner of his death. He said, I, he told his disciples, I think it's in Matthew 20 earlier, he told his disciples, I am going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. So the Jews said this so that Jesus's word might be fulfilled. The, I, the words that he was going to be crucified signifying what kind of death he was going to die. In other words, the Jews turning him over to the Romans fulfilled Jesus's prediction about crucifixion is because the Romans are the ones that do crucifixion. Verse 33, then Pilate went back into the headquarters, summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you asking this on your own? Or have you, or have others told you about me? I'm not a Jew in my, Pilate replied. In other words, I'm not involved in internal in, in internal Jewish politics, you tell me. I'm not a Jew. You tell me what they're saying about you, what your own people are saying about you. Now, Jesus says here something critical in verse 36. My kingdom is not of this world, said Jesus. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I wouldn't be handed over to the Jews. As it is, my kingdom does not have its origin here. So right then, Pilate must have known this man is not a political revolutionary. Political revolutionaries don't talk like that. Pilate goes on, you are a king then, Pilate asked, so he's kind of saying, "Oh well, okay, he says he's uh, a king, but he's a king not of this world, so exactly what does that mean? You say that I'm a king, Jesus replied, I was born for this, and I have come into the world for this, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate responded, what is truth, said Pilate, so apparently now Pilate is thinking, this guy sounds kind of like a philosopher, sounded like Socrates here, talking about what is truth. Political revolutionaries don't talk like that. And we're going to know as we go through these passages here that Pilate is trying to release Jesus. He knows he's innocent. After all, he was charged with political insurrection. For three and a half years, Jesus had been wandering all over Israel preaching, and not one riot had occurred. Not one report of sedition, just people getting healed and, and Jesus teaching with authority that the rabbis had. But there was no problem with insurrection against the Jews. In fact, Jesus was very careful about that. And in fact, one time Jesus said, Render unto Caesar what's Caesar's. So, after he had said this, after Pilate said what is truth, he went out to the Jews again and told them, I find no grounds for charging him. Of course, because he's innocent as he could be. You have a custom that I release one prison to you at Passover. So, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Pilate wants to get off the hook. He wants to let Jesus go. But I must say that making fun of the Jews by calling Jesus the king of the Jews in an ironic sense was not the way to get the Jews happy with Pontius Pilate. But that's what he did. They shouted back, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a revolutionary. All right, so you see the Jews' accusation against Pilate basically failed. Pilate wants to get this off of his hands. We'll see later that he turns him over to Herod Antipas in just that hope to get him off of his hands so he doesn't have to take jurisdiction over this ticklish case. Why was he in a jam? Because if the Jews get mad enough, they're going to start a riot, and the Romans are going to have Pontius's head for that, and he doesn't want to start a riot. But on the other hand, he doesn't want to condemn an innocent man either, so... So he's and so he's got to, He's got to please the Jews enough so they don't start a riot. But on the other hand, he needs to satisfy Roman law also. So he's kind of stuck in the middle. Now Jesus, when Pilate had Jesus alone in the Praetorium, away from the high priest and the chief priest and the Pharisees and the scribes, Jesus didn't answer him. In verse twelve here, it says Jesus didn't answer. Why? Because he knew the charges were ridiculous and not worthy of an answer, as John Gill says. Plus, he knew all the people in Israel knew that the charges were ridiculous, John Gill says. So this is an obvious kangaroo court. The Jews were so full of wrath and anger that they were making themselves look silly. But Jesus is not going to answer charges that, that are stupid. Jesus knew that when he successfully answered those charges, they would just invent new charges. Because hell a high water, they were bent on destroying him, and it didn't matter. So he just stood there. I don't blame him. He knew the charges were contradictory and self-refuting, says Clark. I know a contradictory clause, Clark doesn't give any examples, but the thing about in Luke 23, 2, where the the Jews tell Pilate, we found this man subverting our nation, really? Opposing payment of taxes to Caesar? He never said that. He said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. So the charges didn't really hold up, and Pilate knew they weren't going to hold up. Matthew 27, verses 13 through 14. Then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? But he didn't answer him even one charge so that the government was greatly amazed. Now, the reason that Pilate was amazed was because usually defendants try to talk their way out of what's being charged against them, especially when their life is in danger. But Jesus didn't even try. John Gill says that Pilate's actually kind of asking, being friendly to him. He said, don't you hear how much they're testifying against you? Say something in your defense so I can let you off. Jesus probably knew that even if Pilate let him off, he was still going to get caught by the Jewish mob, he was he was still gonna get nailed no matter what he did, so it was no point. So he didn't he didn't try to defend himself at this point. Now at one point in Annas's place when somebody slapped him he did defend himself. But here he didn't, because I guess by now it was obvious there was no no hope of him getting off. Why was Pilate amazed? Jesus had spoken with weight and authority all throughout his ministry. He had won thousands to his cause by his teaching. He had often silenced the scribes and the Pharisees. He did that all the time, made them look like monkeys, made them shut up. No man had spoken like him before, as it says in the scripture somewhere. And he was charged with a capital crime. Well, somebody like that, who seemed utterly fearless of death and who could teach like that, The majesty of his presence is enough to make Pilate realize this guy is unusual. He is not a revolutionary. Now, the fact that Jesus didn't answer actually fulfills scripture, prophecy. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and afflicted, Isaiah says, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep silent before her shearers, he did not open his mouth. Perfect fulfillment of prophecy right there when Jesus didn't answer. And again, let me repeat, the reason Jesus didn't answer because he knew that Pilate could in no way oppose the Jewish mob and events actually proved him right because Pilate finally had to say, you take care of this, I wash my hands of it, and he turned Jesus over to the mob. Matthew 27, verse 15, At the festival, that's the Passover, the governor's custom was to release to the crowd a prisoner they wanted. Now, nothing of this custom is known outside the Gospels, according to my NIV study Bible, but it was a custom that was there, Probably, it might have been a Roman custom instituted to get the favor of the people, speculate John Gill and Adam Clark, and this custom, this practice became customary over time. The festival, of course, was the Passover festival, which is about the time of Jesus' crucifixion. And John chapter 18 explicitly says it's at the Passover. So we go to Matthew 27, verse 16. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Why was he notorious? Well, he was a thief, he was guilty of sedition, he was guilty of insurrection, and he was a murderer. In fact, he had committed murder while engaged in insurrection, which is the worst kind of murder to governing authorities. Mark 15, verse 7, there was one named Barabbas who was imprisoned prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. I don't know what rebellion that was. It was some rebellion against the Roman authorities, and murder had been committed. Now, see, he was obvious that Barabbas was guilty. Pilate didn't have any trouble with him, but Jesus, he hadn't done anything. He had committed murder. He hadn't started riots. Barabbas means son of a father, literally, and Gil speculates that that means a father's child who was spoiled and ruined, or maybe he was a child of his father, the devil. Well, Gil's got a great imagination. I don't know if that's what Barabbas means or not, but he's gone down in our culture. We all know who Barabbas was. Give us Barabbas. He was probably a zealot revolutionary. Matthew 27, verses 17 through 18. So when they had gathered together, that's the crowd, not the chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, but the whole crowd, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, who is it you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, Jesus, who is called Messiah. Now you notice Pilate didn't say he was the Messiah, he said he is called Messiah by the people. And of course, I'm sure he's baiting them a little bit. Look, he's people are calling him the Messiah. You want to kill somebody who a lot of people in this crowd or a lot of people in Israel think is the Messiah, you want me to kill him? Or would you rather me kill a man who is known to be a murderer and a revolutionary? Verse 18, for he knew, Pilate knew, they had handed him over, the Jews, the Jewish leaders had handed Jesus over because of envy. In other words, it wasn't because of a political crime against the state that they had handed him over. It was because they were religiously jealous that Jesus had taken their place in the kingdom of Israel. And he knew it was a religious thing, and he knew that the Pharisees were full of it. And the high priests and the Sadducees were just full of hatred and envy. They didn't care about justice. Now, how did he know that? Well, he could look at their faces. He could listen to the charges against Jesus and realize that they were absurd, that they could not hold up, that he had not started a sedition. He had not, Jesus had not started an insurrection. He knew about Jesus's popularity. And so he figured Jesus is popular, therefore the Jews are envious. They turned him over because of envy, and they and Pilate could also tell the Jews weren't interested in the peace and tranquility of the Roman Empire. That was the farthest thing from their mind. And, they, and he was not a stupid man. He knew what they were doing. Now, when Jesus, when Pilate said, "Who is it you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus?" There's a couple of options when we try to describe the motive that Pilate had in proposing Barabbas as a candidate for release. First option, maybe. Pilate was trying to defame Jesus by comparing him with a mon- notorious murder. In other words, he's saying, look at here, we got a notorious murder up here, and we got somebody who's, who's in the same boat as this terrible murderer Barabbas, so he must be lousy too. No, I don't think so. That can't be. John Gill denies that, and I deny it too, because Pilate is trying to get Jesus off because he knows he's innocent. So the other option is that, G- that what Pilate is doing here, he's trying to put up a notorious, terrible guy, Say, look, I am willing to let this nasty, stinking murderer loose, and you know the charges against him are very, very serious. I'm willing to forgive all those charges if you just let Jesus go. And he figured the Jews, Pilate figured the Jews would not be so low as to choose Barabbas over Jesus. I mean, after all, Barabbas was a notorious murderer, as I just said, and also because Jesus had recently been so popular. So he figured, well, they were saying Hosanna to the king just last week, so they must go. they're must they going to let Jesus go and get me off the hook here so I don't have to condemn an innocent man. Well, we have a question here. Why did the crowds turn against Jesus? Because they didn't say let him go. They said give us Barabbas, not Jesus. Why did the crowds turn against Jesus? Now, in a previous audio, I said, well, it's probably because the Pharisees and the scribes and the high priest, they bribed a portion of the crime, and those people crying, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, they were probably a different portion of the crowd than were saying, Hosanna to the king on Palm Sunday at the, last, in the pre, at the previous Sunday. Well, on further reflection, I'm thinking that might not be so. It could be that those people who were crying out Hosanna, Hosanna to the king might have changed their minds when they saw that Jesus had been condemned, not only by the Jews, but he was standing up there in front of a Roman court, and the crowd might be thinking, mm, well, a Messiah is not going to be caught, and turned into a criminal jesus must have been a fraud he must have been an imposter and that's why they got angry and turned against him that is an idea so it could be either one either the gold or the and and the scribes and pharisees could have gone into the crowds and say look you don't condemn if you don't let jesus go he's going to start a messianic movement and the Romans are going to come in here and they're going to wipe us out could have been saying that or they could have been saying look he's guilty he wouldn't have been caught and put in and put on trial like he's being put on trial here. But at any rate, the crowd turned against Jesus, or a good portion of the crowd turned against Jesus. So Jesus is abandoned, abandoned by his disciples. Now he's been abandoned by his by those who were saying Hosanna to the king the week before. Jesus knew what it was like to get popularity and lose it real fast. And he knows he's about to die. He knows there's no hope now in in, in the natural sense of saving his natural life. Matthew 27, verse 19. While he was sitting on the judge's bench, that's Pilate, There was a a bench that uh, was in the praetorium where judges sat. His wife sent word to him. His wife is unknown to history. We don't know her name. His wife sent word to him, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For today I've suffered terribly in a dream because of him. And the ancients really took dreams seriously. And here Pilate's wife is saying, even she realized in her dream, Jesus hadn't done anything wrong. Don't do it because they had a terrible fear of, of harming an innocent person because that innocent person might come back to haunt them. This incident is found, incidentally, only in Matthew's Gospel. There are no parallels. Now, Pilate's wife probably already knew that Pilate had condoned that evening meeting at Caiaphas' house where that rump of the Sanhedrin had convicted and condemned Jesus, and the servants slapped him and beat him. She probably knew that the Sanhedrin had met in the morning and legally and officially condemned Jesus, and she had probably heard that Jesus' case had been handed over to Pilate. And by that time, she starts thinking about her dream. She says, you know, uh-uh, I, I don't want my husband to be a part of this. Now, where did that dream come from? This is an interesting speculation because we don't know where, dream, where the, her dream came from. But one speculation is the dream came from God. This is Adam Clark suggests this. But there's a problem with that that I bring up. Why would God interfere with his predetermined plan to offer Jesus up as a sacrifice? Well, to answer my own objection, I, I could say, well, maybe God wanted to have one more witness of Jesus's, Jesus's innocence. Here's some examples of the witnesses of Jesus's innocence. Judas, his betrayer, said, "I have sinned. I have condemned an innocent man." He told that to the high priest as he, was, as he was trying to return his thirty pieces of silver. Pilate said more than once he could find nothing guilty in Jesus. He looked at the Jesus and said, "There's nothing. I can't charge him with anything. He's, he's innocent." And now we have Pilate's wife. Again, there's a there's a reason for all this. We want to see that Jesus was was unjustly condemned. That he truly was the sinless Messiah. Some people speculate it was the devil to keep that gave that dream to Pilate's wife to keep Jesus from being the sacrifice for the sins of the world. I don't think so. I don't think that's true. I, I don't know why I don't think it's true. I just don't. Another option, third option, was just a natural dream. She would be thinking about all the things that had happened in Jerusalem in the last week. The whole city was in an uproar, and her husband must have talked to her about what was going on, and so she just dreamed. I don't know, but at any rate, even she in her dreams knew that Jesus was innocent. What did she call him? She called him that righteous man. What kind of a criminal is called that righteous man by the wife of the governing authority? Matthew 27, verse 20, the chief priests and the elders, however, persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas to execute Jesus. And this is where people come up with the idea that the crowds that were yelling for Jesus' execution and for the freedom of Barabbas were actually a portion of the crowd that had been persuaded by the chief priests and the elders. How did they do the persuasion? Well, they could have told the crowd that Jesus had been unanimously condemned by the Sanhedrin, so therefore you must be guilty. And then they could have told the crowd that if the Romans hear of a Messiah, of someone who claims to be the Messiah, they're going to crush Israel. So don't you, don't you say, give us Jesus, say, give us Barabbas instead. Matthew 27:21 through 22. The governor, that's Pilate, asked them, the crowd, which of the two do you want me to release for you? This is the second time he's asked, because again, he didn't like the first answer, Barabbas. He's still trying to get Jesus off. Barabbas, they answered. Pilate asked them, what should I do then with Jesus, who is called Messiah? So he's still trying to get Jesus off. He says, okay, uh, they won't Barabbas, I'll let him off. And logically, that would imply that Jesus, therefore, must be executed. But Jesus, instead of following that implication and say, okay, well, I'll execute Jesus, he asked the question, well, what should I do with Jesus? Do you really want me to kill him? They all answered, crucify him. Pontius Pilate was probably astonished that when the first time he asked the crowd, who should I release, he was probably astonished when they answered Barabbas. He was probably expecting Jesus. So that's why he asked a second time. He couldn't believe that they would ask for a notorious murder over this innocent man. The apostle Peter later attacked the Jewish crowds for choosing Barabbas over Jesus. In Acts chapter 3, verse 14 in Peter's Pentecostal sermon, Peter says this, But you, the crowd, denied the holy and righteous one and asked to have a murderer given to you. You prefer to murder over the holy and righteous Messiah, the Son of God. Of course, they were cut to their quick, a lot of them. A lot of them got saved. Matthew 27, verse 23. Then he said, why, Pilate, says to the crowd, why should I kill Jesus? What has he done wrong? He's still professing Jesus innocence. But they kept shouting, crucify him all the more. You see, the more Pilate kept saying he's innocent, the louder the crowd get, the angrier they got, and the more they kept shouting, crucify him all the more. The more the crowd saw that Pilate wanted to free him, the more vicious they got. And that means that they were approaching the riot stage, and Pilate realized, I'm in trouble here, because if the riot starts, the Romans are going to have my neck. Matthew 27, verse 24. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that a riot was starting, instead he took some water, washed his hands in front of the crowd, and said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourself. So... Pilate realized he couldn't spring Jesus without a riot. He wasn't going to have a riot because of fear of the Romans. So he washed his hands, the universal symbol of, I'm not having anything to do with this. I'm not guilty of his blood. And said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. In other words, you kill him. I'm not going to crucify him. But the problem is, is you can't just wash your hands and get away with that. Pilate is the legal official in charge. He murdered Jesus. He can't just wash his hands of the affair. When he turned Jesus over to the crowd, he was committing judicial murder, and no amount of hand washing is going to get rid of that. Where did this idea of washing hands come from? Gill said it was a Jewish custom that came from the law because they were always washing their hands in various sacrifices. Like in Deuteronomy 21.6, all the elders of the city nearest to the victim, that's a cow, excuse me, that's the victim of a murder, excuse me, will wash their hands by the stream over the young cow whose neck has been broken. So the Jews washed their hands a lot. The Gentiles had a custom to wash their hands to expiate a murder. And the Greeks and the Latins had such customs, Adam Clark has dug up, and it's in our culture now, you know, I wash my hands of that, we have that as a common expression because of what Pontius Pilate did here. But as I said earlier, Pilate could not distance himself from his crime. As John Gill says, he scourged an innocent man, and this is interesting, he kept saying, I'm going to let him go, I'm going to let him go, and he scourged him. Well, if he's innocent, why are you going to scourge him? Why are you going to whip him if he's innocent? He knew the man to be innocent. He whipped him anyway, and then he delivered him up to be crucified. He could have commanded the Roman legions to disperse the crowd, as Adam Clark said. And Adam Clark said what Pilate did was, quote, unquote, inexcusable. And it was. He murdered the Son of God, judicially, because of his fear of what's going to happen with his Roman bosses. The ironic thing is, is that he was such a lousy governor, he got the Samaritans so angry at him. Samaritans complained to the Romans, and in AD 36, the Romans relieved him of his procuratorship, his governorship. And two years later after that, depressed, he killed himself. I wonder if he was depressed because he had killed that innocent man. You never know. It could have been. He killed the Son of God. You know, that might have psychological implications. Matthew 27, verse 25. All the people answered, His blood be on us and our children. Now, this is a key verse here, and I'm going to finish up this video, with it, this audio, with this verse. The crowd answered, His blood be on us and our children. Now, why did they say that? Well, they didn't think Jesus was innocent. They probably thought Jesus was guilty. So, they're saying... If he is innocent, then that innocent blood will call out for justice to heaven, and heaven will judge us and our children. But we don't think he's innocent, so his blood's not going to be crying out to anybody. That was a common Jewish expression, of course, blood crying up to heaven for for vengeance, like with Cain and Abel, if you recall that. So they actually didn't think Jesus was innocent, 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 so they didn't really mean to be calling curses on themselves, but they did call a curse on themselves because Jesus was innocent, and his blood did call up to heaven for retribution. Wrath came upon them to the uttermost, as John Gill says. The entire destruction of their temple, city, and nation occurred in AD 70, and it's remarkable that many of them were killed by crucifixion. Just as Jesus was killed by crucifixion, so were many of of that Jewish generation killed by crucifixion. The Romans ran out of room for crosses, Josephus says, in the War of the Jews. They also ran out of wood for the crosses. They didn't have room to to nail the corpses to the walls of Jerusalem anymore, and they didn't have any more wood to make crosses to nail the victims on. Of course, you have to read the Jewish war. One, what is it, 1.1 million people killed an incredible bloodbath? Great reading if you like history. The War of the Jews, you should read it. If you want to understand the New Testament, you've got to read the War of the Jews to understand what happened in 80, 70 and the 8070 and the Olivet Discourse. Now, the Jews believed that guilt for shedding innocent blood was passed down to the end of the world. Not only Pilate was worried about killing an innocent man, the Jews were too. They didn't care. They didn't think he was innocent. They thought he was guilty. But this is how serious they thought they took killing innocent people this is quoting a rabbi, John Gill quoting a certain rabbi, Know ye that capital causes are not as pecuniary ones. In pecuniary cases, causes, a man gives his money and it atones for him. But in capital causes, his blood and the blood of his seed hang upon him to the end of the whole world. Killing people's very serious business in most cultures and most times. And the rabbis were the same way. But these Jews didn't care. They were absolutely convinced that Jesus was guilty and we don't care. Let his blood, let, let the punitive for us killing him, come down on us and our children. Now, we get to something that's very important here. What does children mean? Now, all throughout history, people have said, see, the Jews are cursed because they killed Jesus. This led to all kinds of anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages, and people have still been out of shape to this day, especially Jews, about this kind of thing. In fact, I think I remember reading several years ago that the, passion, the, the great passion play that's in, uh, where is that? It's somewhere in Germany, I forgot the name of it, the German town there, they had to take it out of the play or something because the Jews, said the uh, present-day modern Jews said it was anti-Semitic. Well, this is very unfortunate because that word for children there is not descendants. It's not descendants. It means your first, your children and your immediate family. And so what Jesus is saying, what these people are saying is, his, here is his blood be it on us and our children, which is one generation later, which is eighty seventy, and that's it. That actually came to pass. The blood came on them, the the judgment for killing Jesus came on them, but it was expiated in 8070. Once Jerusalem was wiped out, there's no Jew guilty for the killing of Jesus after that. So all that stuff during the Middle Ages when the Catholic Church is blaming the Jews, they were wrong about that. Many people say that Jews are cursed all throughout history to this day, as I just said. Here's a quote from Adam Clark. Their children or descendants have the same curse entailed upon them and continue to this day. And Adam Clark is no Catholic. He's a Protestant saying the same thing. To, the, to his day in the 19th century, Jews are cursed. That's not what this verse means. Now, why is this not so? The word is children, not descendants, as I just said. Now, here's a quote from a guy on the Internet named Todd Baker. I don't know Todd Baker, but there's, he had a good article here. Quote, The meaning of children in the cry of the crowd in Matthew 27-25 does not mean all the subsequent descendants of those Jews who rejected Christ in Matthew 26-27. The word in the Greek text of Matthew can also mean a child of parents. In the context of verse 25, it refers to the offspring of the unbelieving Jews of Jerusalem who shouted for Christ to be crucified. This at once limits the meaning to only one generation and corresponds with the judgment of Jerusalem in AD 70. So the curse does not carry beyond the first generation. Temporally, the Jews expiated their sin in 8070. Of course, eternally and spiritually, they have to accept Jesus to forgive them, which could, of course, ha- have happened. But as far as the temporal punishment, that happened in 8070. And we need to forget about Hitler and all that refer- uh, destroying the Jew- Jews in Germany because of what, what the first century Jewish leaders did to Jesus. The, as I said earlier, the disregard of this distinction between descendant and children justified terrible anti-Semitism in the Middle Ages. The curse was not on all Jews, just the ones who killed Jesus. Now, look, and think about this. If the curse was on all Jews, how about the disciples of Jesus? Every one of them was Jewish. How about Jesus? He was Jewish. Well, they obviously, the disciples weren't cursed. We could just as logically say that all Italians are guilty because Romans killed Jesus. We don't say that. That's why some of these reparation people, we're all guilty of slaveholding because some white people own slaves, so therefore all white people are guilty. That's nonsense. We could say the same thing about the Chinese. They used to have slavery. All Chinese today are guilty because earlier Chinese people owned slaves. It's absolute nonsense. This race guilt type of idea is nonsense. And and, and by the way, that idea is not dead. There are people today in the Church of Jesus Christ calling for reparations against white people to pay for slavery, despite the fact that most of the white people living today had nothing to do with slavery. Eighty percent of the people in the South didn't own slaves. How about all the, the Irish people? They didn't own slaves. They were More abject circumstances than the slaves were, as Thomas Sowell has pointed out. How about all the immigrants that came after the Civil War that had nothing to do with slavery when slavery was already abolished? We're going to make them pay for something they had nothing to do with? Race guilt, my friends, is a terrible thing. Justice is individual, it's not societal, it's individual. You don't make people pay for something they didn't do. And we cannot blame the Jews for something, current, present day Jews, for something they had absolutely nothing to do with. Now, they're they are guilty just like a Gentile's guilty if they don't believe in Jesus. They're guilty because they haven't had their sins taken care of. But they're not guilty for the specific sin of nailing Jesus up on the cross. And even if, for the sake of argument, I agree there was a curse on all Jews to the end of time, guess what? Curses can be broken. How? How can curses be reversed when people repent and ask Jesus to forgive them? So, I hope I've made myself clear on that emotional point. And with that, I will finish this audio will continue with the uh, crucifixion of jesus in the next in the next audio i hope you enjoyed this one